What's up, everyone? Welcome to the very first official Aubrey Marcus podcast. Get amped, right? Right, Raba? That's the way we're rolling? All right, perfect. <laughs> that, sounded like a, right. that sounded like the monkey that was riding the it, dog that we were did. just looking at. So if you, Google, if you Google monkeys riding dogs, I would definitely click on the one that has them chasing uh, and herding sheep. sheep. Yeah. yeah, that's the best. So the voice you hear is my man, Ryan Holiday, author, general badass of all kinds of things involving marketing and thinking and uh, stoicism. And, and what else? What else would you say, Ryan? I guess that's it. Yeah, that's pretty that's good. That's a pretty good list. <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, so yeah, first ever Aubrey Marcus podcast. I think I'd take a chance to explain that. Um, you know, Warrior Poet was a concept that I came up with like 10 years ago. And for me, it was about the balance of opposites, you know, the warrior and the poet, the yin and yang, and the, and the kind of the balance between those. Still really like that, but um, I don't know, just kind of feel more like the world is such a wide place and that kind of narrows it down to a very kind of it's a very kind of masculine idea, and it's uh, so I just thought, you know what? I want to talk about anything, whatever. Plus, you're the star now. You got to put the name out there. <laughs> I don't know about a star, but I have some ideas every once in a while. You know, I figure I figure a few things out and realize uh, how much more I have to figure out. So, well, welcome, dude. Um, it's good to be here. I just finished reading Obstacles Away again and forgot how badass that book is. I mean, it's that's very cool. That's really, really dope. And so both of us share kind of a history in classical philosophy. And so I got to read. I was a classical civil, civ major in, in school. Really? Yeah, yeah. And philosophy double major. So that was, my, wow. that was my thing. So I got, you know, indoctrinated into that kind of school of thought, both the Stoics and the Epicureans and all of the different, different people. But the way that you kind of drew all of the analogies through Stoicism was really the best treatment of that topic I've ever heard of. Well, thank you. Well, not as good as the originals, right? Like what, what I think is really cool about Stoicism, and I tried to say this in the book, is if you want to know what Stoicism is, read that you can't go wrong, and there is no more accessible form of philosophy than Stoicism, yeah. right? Like it, it's as simple as it gets. It's as straightforward as it gets. It's none of the things that you would think about and be intimidated by if you were going to engage Super in Super practical. It's, yeah, it's designed to solve the problems right. of life. All I was trying to do in the book was to take those lessons and then illustrate them with stories sort of in a business or a creative context. So the, the lessons are not mine. The research, I guess, would be my contribution. Mm -hmm. And that's one thing that I really appreciate it because obviously Robert Greene is one of my favorite authors of all time. And it has that a little bit of that similar flavor as you'd find in 48 Laws of Power where it's concept and then badass story explaining how that concept made sense in somebody else's life that you're familiar with. Yeah, well, I mean, that's where I learned it from, obviously. And yeah. I, would, I would also say that I, some of the examples are because I was Robert Greene's research assistant for a long time, some of these stories are stories that were rejected by Robert Greene, but I still really <laughs> liked. So, um, like, I how think, are you going to reject Abe, Abe Lincoln and his melancholy? Yeah, you know, you no, that, he that. didn't see that one. But I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of an example of something I used. But um, yeah, like they would, uh, I would go like Robert. I think this story would work. And he'd say that doesn't, that doesn't quite illustrate what I was trying to say. And then I sat on it for four years or something like that. And finally, it will not be in vain. So your process, you had actually like note cards right you would read books and then create little note cards that's the process that you and Robert yeah both well like. that that's robert's system that that he taught me so every book is a sort of a collection of these four by six index cards you read something it's not just about reading it but you're going through and you're actually sort of you're mining 
Yeah, you're mining for material right. that you're going to use, whether it's in a memo down the road or a speech or an article or, you know, ideally a book. And so I'd, I'd re- I, was, I was reading a lot of philosophy. I, I read about this Stoic exercise sort of called turning the obstacle upside down, where everything that happens to you to the Stoics is seen as like an opportunity of some kind, an opportunity to practice excellence, perhaps not in the form that you originally intended, but excellence nevertheless. And so I had, you know, 10 or 20 note cards on that topic. And when I, after I sold my first book and the week it came out, the publisher was like, what do you want to do next? They have like a contract for your, mm-hmm. your next book. And I was like going through my note cards. I was like, there it is. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I sold that, I wrote the proposal and then it was, you know, two years of research, basically finding themes and ideas around, uh, stoicism and then stories that illustrate it. And like, if you look at obstacle, it's, it's three parts, probably 30 chapters each part is a section of note cards, and then each subchapter is a collection of note cards. Yeah, and that's that's all it is. You can move them around and do what you want with them. That's, I mean, it's such an old school system, but it seems like there's something about having it tangible that yeah. really seems to make a lot of sense in that process, right? Yeah, I mean, because I, I remember when Robert was showing me this, I was like, you know, you could do this in like Evernote or you could do right. this on the computer, and he's like, no, that's not the point, <laughs> you know, because the point, what and what I've learned, it's two things. One, like, so let's say there's this like really great quote that I think might work in multiple sections. Mm-hmm. If it's digital, I can just copy and paste it a bunch of times. If it's physical, I have to write it down by hand each time, yeah. which forces my brain to go over it and think about it. And I have a memory of quotes much better than I would if I was able to use these tools that were making it easier. It's like it's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be hard. Yeah. And then the other part is being able to say, like, let's say I'm writing um, section or part two, you know, chapter seven, right? Um, I'm working on that, and then I have these note cards that are extra that don't make sense. I can physically pick them up and say, you know what, like this one will go here, this one will go here, this one will go here, and I actually keep them in these boxes. They're meant for storing like old uh, photos, and uh, they've stopped making it. Like I've been using them for three or four years, and they finally stopped making them. So I, if you I had to buy you're... ten of them <laughs> on Amazon, I spent like a thousand dollars buying these out of print photo boxes. If anybody is hoarding these boxes, you know, you can talk to Ryan and Robert. Wait for their be really desperate. They're the worst. They're called <laughs> cropper hoppers, which is like could not like this thing that means like so much to me. It's got like the lamest name that I could possibly think of. Yeah. Your treasure of cropper <laughs> yeah, hoppers. Yeah. Like like your house runs uh, gets on fire and like save the cropper hoppers, please. I finally I so two things about so one my house got broken into about two years ago. Nobody took the cropper well, hoppers. Well Great they didn't defense. but that was the first it was like you can steal anything you want. Just like, please don't have stole like 10 years of research in these cards. <laughs> and they, they didn't steal it, right? But they destroyed everything in my house. And so I'm- How as I'm, rude. I mean, right? you're stealing shit anyways. Why yeah. you gotta break shit? Yeah. Fucking criminals. It was the worst. And so I'm, I'm going through like the wreckage of my house basically. And I, I take the cards and I like set them on this thing. And uh, I'm like cleaning up and I'm, thank God they didn't steal the note cards. And then I turn around and it's like a fucking cartoon. I just run right into it. They fly everywhere. I have to individually. Oh, no. re- like, I almost oh, would have no. rather they stole them oh, no. than me have to individually reorganize all the note cards. So there's some upside and some downside yes. to your note cards plan. Well, the, what Robert and I figured out, this is a bridge of technology. Uh, he was like, he was telling me that he was so scared of losing them and I was too. <laughs> so he found this cool scanner that scans them very quickly and then we ended up hiring people on TaskRabbit yeah. to go through. And so now they're all digitally Redundant. archived. 
but I've never looked at the archive. It's just in case like there was a fire or something. Yeah, I think that, you know, having access to those important sections of a book is like really vital. Even if you're not planning to be a writer, like sure. just having access to those thoughts so you can go back and because you, you tend to forget a lot of what you read in a yeah. book, you know, so be able to go back and just see the highlights and the notes. Um, and the way that it's it's like set up in Kindle and it's set up in these other things, it's still annoying. You got to like, sure. but to have it all like laid out in note cards, that'd be badass. I've started taking some, some notes digitally, but it makes, it makes a big difference. There's this book, it's called like the Reagan notes or something like that. And it's just a collection of Reagan did the same system. And they were all like people, it was like, where did he get these like folksy anecdotes and quotes <laughs> and stories? Like which he was really a master yeah. of as a storyteller. It's because for like 40 years, he'd been collecting these, he did them on three by five note cards and he kept them in a photo binder. Mm -hmm. And like, is the speech writers would give him a speech and be like, uh, go get the binder. And they would go get the binder and there'd be like the perfect quote for exactly what he was trying to say right, right there. And this is published. And so, yeah, like Chekhov had a similar system and you could find his, like most great writers or communicators have this sort of treasure trove. I know hip hop, hip hop artists, they have their notebooks, yeah. you know, like notebook of rhymes and whatever that, that some that'll form the basis of some song. I'm like, all right, what do I yeah. say in this, you know, this totally. section here? Oh, I got this rhyme that I haven't said. And then, yeah. And there's this, there's a genre of literature called the commonplace book, which is just like smart people writing down like Latin sayings or examples or anecdotes or whatever. And, and a bunch of these have survived and they're like collections of wisdom. Some of the classical philosophers that we know about, their works have been lost, but they survived to us in like aphorisms and small yeah. lines that other people had written down. So like we know like uh, for like Epictetus, the philosopher, there's like there's a number of books that he published and only like five of them survive totally. And the rest we only know of because other people have like quoted lines from those books and they don't match anything. So like, it's also part of like, I think this sort of literary tradition of like preserving sure. knowledge. Sure. Makes sense. All right. So let's talk about stoicism a little bit. Stoic. So Marcus Aurelius is kind of credited as the, like the father of stoicism, but he wasn't the originator. No, right? he's the most famous. He's the most famous. Yeah. Because he was in the movie Gladiator. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a badass name too. Mar of Marcus course. Aurelius. I mean, not as good as what's the guy's name in Gladiator? Like Desmus Meridius. Whatever. Yeah. Maximus. That, with that scene where he yeah, like yeah. unrolls his like <laughs> massive name and I will have yeah. my vengeance. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so Marcus and his vengeance is throwing telephones at people who yes. are working, working in hotels. Yes. I will have my vengeance smashed. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Marcus Aurelius is, is the, probably the most famous philosopher, period, most famous philosopher king, because it's crazy to think that he was this young boy who wanted to be a philosopher. And then sort of without his consent, he's adopted by the emperor and then made heir to the throne, right? Like he didn't actually inherit it like because of his bloodline. Like someone was like, that boy seems like he really has it together. <laughs> and, and so like the actual chain is the emperor Hadrian um, had one successor and decided that wasn't good enough. He sees Marcus Aurelius, he sees something in this young Marcus Aurelius, wants him to be emperor, but he's too young. So he adopts another guy, Ant Antonius Pius, who in turn is obligated to adopt Marcus Aurelius as his son. So Marcus Aurelius, this kid who was studying to be a philosopher, suddenly finds himself like in line for the throne. Um, he inherits it. He never stops studying philosophy. And then the crazy thing is what, what people don't get is 
um, he wasn't the only emperor, right? The, the first thing he does as, as emperor is names his half-brother co-emperor because he felt like that was the right thing to do. It, mm. it actually wasn't. He turned out to be like a terrible person. And right. so did his son. But uh, <laughs> he's, the mo- he's the most famous Stoic philosopher because he was the most famous man on earth for right. a very long period. And it turns out he's sort of like, one of maybe two or three people in all of history, as Matthew Arnold puts it, who had absolute power and sort of proved themselves to be like worthy of it. Like they mm-hmm. did, he didn't do anything. Well, the Christians would disagree because he killed a lot of them, but he didn't do anything that would lead you to say like, this is why people shouldn't have absolute power. Right? Sure. He's yeah. Like he defied the, that old aphorism. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Yeah. And what's know. so powerful about Mark Surrealis's meditations, the, the book that survives to us from him is that it's basically a book of him battling that idea. Mm-hmm. Like every day he's waking up and writing these notes to himself about how not to be corrupted by power, about how to be patient to people or with people, how to be just, how to, you know, like there's this one line where he says like, never, never get caught. I was tweeting it today. He's like, never get caught uh, complaining at court. And it's like, this is the most powerful man in the world reminding himself not to complain about his job in which he can literally kill anyone, sure. buy anything, do anything. And so it's this it's this total historical anomaly, which I, I'm just in love with. Well, you know, it's it's funny because people look at people like Marcus Aurelius. Oh, Emperor Rome, he had it fucking made. But that's a hell of a challenge, too. That's a hell of a mountain to be on top of there. Yeah. You know? So that is that is both the like the greatest boon of the universe and like the greatest obstacle as well. Sure. I, I mean, mean look at Obama's hair from 2008 yeah. to 2009, yeah. right? It, it, look at a uh, look at look at any dictator, right? It's not yeah. a pleasant life. Um right. and I think I think what you say is like, okay, if this is helpful to someone who literally had the world resting on their shoulders, how can it help me with whatever I do, whether I'm a writer or I'm a business person or I'm an employee or whatever? And you see, like, Bill Clinton rereads Marx Realist every year. And, and so of a, a number of really interesting historical figures because it's like, it's, it's the only man, like, when the president writes his memoirs, he's not writing it to help other presidents, right? This mm-hmm. is like the only book that's designed specifically sort of for the burdens of responsibility and command. Yeah. Well, because the challenge is the magnitude is just greater. But as you said, it applies to everybody. You know, I mean, I I really got a lot out of reading this recently because after you go through reading your book, it's like you start to look at every little thing that annoys you as like, okay, cool. What's that obstacle? Like, what can I learn from that? Instead of like it completely reframes the whole concept of these things like being misfortunate. You know, I had a I had a famous quote from Castaneda, who is a crazy fuck, but I still like his quotes. <laughs> and it was, uh, to the ordinary person, everything is a blessing or a curse. To right. the warrior, there are only challenges. Yeah. You know, which is very much a stoic totally. sentiment there that everything that you look at, it's not like, oh man, I can't believe this happened today or blah, blah. It's just like, okay, this was a challenge. Cool. What? How can I use that to test myself? How can I make that the grindstone and the heat to sharpen my sword? Totally. I mean, I think that, that brings two things for me. So one, the other most famous Stoic is Epictetus, who was a slave. Mm-hmm. And Marcus Aurelius had a teacher who was a student of Epictetus, right? So Marcus Aurelius learns Stoic philosophy from the lecture notes of a former slave. 
So it's just like it'd be like if Abraham Lincoln had had been taught by Frederick Douglass or something like that. It's just totally insane, been, right? You should start that rumor, dude. I, I should. They were friends. They did yeah. meet on several occasions. You should, um, people love that. People right. love like the. What, it's actually like, and I'm not trying to be racist or all. It's like an actually like a, a literary thing, like the mystic. Negro, the mystical Negro. The mystical yeah. Negro. It's, it's, a like, it's like a thing. Yeah, right? it's like the hooker with a heart of gold. <laughs> right, right, it's right, right. It's like, it's like you just literally, you just insert that into yeah. a story and people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. No, so so he learns from this slave. So it's like on the and, – and he was a slave and he'd been banished by, at, by another emperor, right? This is Epictetus. So it's like so fascinating that like you have this philosophy that on the one hand is for like – Great, the greatest misfortune you can imagine, and then mm-hmm. the greatest fortune you should imagine. So it's this like totally resilient sort of idea, and I think that goes to what you're saying, which is, since I sort of came upon this idea, like because obviously stoicism is is much more than just the idea of like turning obstacles into opportunities or or you know turning obstacles upside down. I've yet to to find a situation in which applying that approach, the Marx Aurelius quote is the impediment to action advances action, what stands in the way becomes the way. I've yet to find a situation when that, in which that does not apply in some form or another. Sure. And you can't think about it, and it doesn't at least make things easier or make things easier to bear, right? Yeah. Ideally, it makes it, it opens some door that allows you to do something awesome. But at the very least, it, it allows you to go like, this sucks. I'm going to suffer through it. And at the very least, I'm going to have some experience suffering through something I can't change. And that makes me better. Yeah, it kind of goes to that idea that pain is inevitable suffering is optional you know yes. like some it doesn't mean that you know when you're listening to this doesn't mean that you're out there looking for bad shit to happen so you can make them obstacles it's just inevitable weird shit bad shit is going to happen and then taking this kind of stoic approach is going to turn that from this misfortune that you're going to layer suffering and all this mental anguish about and just deal with it and say look this is my this is my burden to bear and what can we do to make it better and then all of a sudden that very change of your mentality is going to make it better, like mm-hmm. literally make it better. Because how we think about things has such a dramatic, dramatic effect on on how we actually experience it. Yeah, I mean, so one of my favorite writers is Viktor Frankl, who wrote *Man's Search for Meaning*. Mm-hmm. Who he, he was in three different concentration camps in, in World War II as a just as taking a, a tour, right? He's like, uh, I want to see the other one. Like, yeah, it's just not. Like, what do you got going on over there? Oh yeah, that yeah. sounds horrible. So like his <laughs> his philosophy, or it's actually a school of psychology, is called logotherapy, and that's based on the Greek word, the Stoic concept of the logos, which is a sort of meaning or force that animates life. And, like, for him, like, one of his sort of three principles of life is, like, the ability to find meaning in our suffering. Like, because suffering, he's saying, you're saying it's not inevitable. But he's saying bad shit is inevitable in life. And if you can't figure out how to find meaning from that, you're screwed. And at at the very top of the sort of suffering heap would be the Holocaust, right? Sure. And if, if he personally can say well, this is horrible, I wish this hadn't happened, but now that it is happened, I'm going to sort of test my, my, my work in the laboratory of the worst of human experiences, there will be some meaning in this. And sure. like, I, I, I think that's what you find, is that really resilient, successful people go through things that most of us would find unimaginable or at the very least you know, undesirable, and they find some way to be improved by that experience. Sure. And you give a ton of stories like that. The one that I wasn't aware of was that Abe Lincoln suffered from depression. Like horrible depression. Like horrible like depression. Like going to put a gun in his mouth depression. Yeah, like multiple times considered suicide depression. But then, you know, really he credited that for his compassion, his empathy, so many 
good traits that we know about Abe, he he credits that to this suffering that he this this pain that he had to bear. I should yeah, say. or at the very least, we think he's this like funny, humorous guy. <laughs> right. As you know from from like comedians, like that sense of humor comes from their processing and dealing with the shit hand that they've been dealt in life. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think you see with Abraham Lincoln, this guy that went through this horrible experience, sort of came to terms with it, and then was able to say, okay, the Civil War is a horrible experience. I know what to do here. And yeah. it's what made, like, if you were trying to pick the guy that you would want to lead America through a succession crisis and a, a war, you probably wouldn't pick a gangly weirdo who had no political experience. Uh, his military experience was you wouldn't essentially pick Jimmy a Carter. joke. Right. But no. you, you definitely wouldn't pick Abraham Lincoln either. And yet he did an amazing job because yeah, yeah. he had this sort of inner fortitude that that came from his sort of philosophical approach. Yeah, no doubt. And then other famous people, I know, I don't know if it was in your book, but I know JFK had massive immune problems. Yeah. Like he, really. His like, daily life was like crippling pain. Yeah. You know, all of these people that you look at as these like, resplendent heroes these like sure. knights in shining armor had major burdens that they were bearing yeah know, i mean always. theodore roosevelt's an idea of the strenuous life we have all these like inspirational quotes from theodore roosevelt he had crippling asthma as a boy like to the point where it was like parents thought his parents not only thought he would die they thought the only solution was when he would have an asthma attack was to force him to smoke a cigar like so they would they would sit this little <laughs> boy so gangster. They, they would sit this little boy up and force him to smoke a cigar <laughs> Uh, and, and that was supposedly going to clear like the, the, the problems with his lungs. And at a certain point, his, his father sits him down and he's like, look, Theodore, you're very, very smart and you have very big goals, but it's not enough to be very smart. You have to have like the body to contain that, right? You yeah. have to have the body that backs it up and, and you can see, you can go like the, his townhouse is there in Manhattan. You can see the porch that his father built his like personal gym for him. And like the strenuous life is a reaction. The the quote from Theodore Roosevelt is like, it's like, you have to make your body. And it's this little boy. He's like, I will make my body. And that's what he did. And he becomes this super strong man. And, you know, him, the, our image of Theodore Roosevelt as like a pioneer rancher type came from the fact that his mother and his wife died on the same night in the same house. And there's this there's this diary entry. How did that happen? Uh, she died of one disease and his wife died of another disease. Fuck. At the same time. And he 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 runs in. He gets there. They die within hours of each other. And his diary entry is like an X for that day. And he just wrote the life has uh, the light has gone out of my life. And wow. he 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 suits up. He takes a train to North Dakota, and reinvents himself as the Theodore Roosevelt that we know him as, right? And so you see it's like these no one would wish that on another person. And he would certainly wish that it hadn't happened to him. And he would have wished for it to go away. But none of those But what are you going to do? What are you going to do now? What's he going to do? And yeah. what he did was, you know, change the world. You know, one of the things that I would I would talk to Joe Rogan about and I didn't really fully grasp, you know, a couple of years ago, but now I get it 100%. You know, I would lament about the way that society has become and be like, ah, oh, you sure. know, religion retarded this way and this thing. And I have all these things. And he's like, you know what, man, but we're here and we need this resistance. Like sure. if we're really going to make some shit happen, we need all of this bad stuff that's going on in the world as the, as the obstacle basically yeah. so that we can overcome it so that we're strong enough. It's like, if everything's too easy, it just kind of floats in this listless way. And, and, and 
society as a whole, not just each person, but society as a whole needs these opposing forces. And I thought that was really wise of him to kind of identify. It is. I think what the Stokes would also say is whatever you're fucking complaining about, it's way better than it ever has been before. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. wouldn't you totally. rather, like, so you, you go back like 500 years, the same problems are there. People are closed minded, stupid religious stuff, uh, wars, you know, inability to compromise, uh, you know, all these same things. stuff just add slaves add and, burning witches at the stake and the plague and and the fact that no you could dentists get, you could get a cut on your finger and you would die a horrible agonizing death <laughs> right. a few weeks later and right. not know why right. and chances are like 50 percent of your children would die in childbirth and like all yeah, these other totally. and, and that if you wanted to go from here to 200 miles away that was like a several day journey <laughs> all these other horrible things that have gone away and it's like People then knew what to do about that. Yeah. And the stuff that we're dealing about now. So, like, what I always say is, like, you clear, like, you got to think about it this way, too. It's like, you are the legacy of those, the people that got through that horribleness by nature of the fact that you being here are your ancestors. So, clearly, you have our species has the capacity to get through horrible shit, or you and I wouldn't be here. And yet, you know, we sit around and think that, like, things are bad because, you know, a plane crashed and we can't figure out why. And it's like, you know, 50 years ago, lots of planes crashed. And 50 years before that, there weren't any planes. You know, <laughs> right. like, like, it's way better now. This is way better. Right. Yeah, no doubt. I think <clears throat> there's so many different ways that you can kind of take a look at that. And that's that's really what I love. Like, every little thing... Now, like, let's say you're not sleeping, right? Like, you can't sleep. All right. Well, use that as an obstacle to figure out what is going on. Like, every little thing that's going on, it's a symptom, right? So then track that. Don't be like, man, I just can't sleep, blah, blah, blah. Like, track that motherfucker. Like, all right, what's going on? You got an inflammatory process. You have something with your melatonin, your circadian rhythm cycle. Like, track that. Like, keep going. Be like, all right, thanks. Thanks, fucking body universe for letting me know I can't sleep. To do that. Like, for me, I get this annoying eye twitch every once in a while. And finally, I was like, what the fuck, man? I got to track this. So I'm tracking it back. All right, I got to improve my mineral intake. I got to decrease my stress load. It's like every little thing, instead of it just being an annoyance, like, use that. Right. Yeah, yeah. And and it's it's like if someone is treating... It's not just like your body, but like someone's treating you shitty. Okay, what is it about... Like, I can't control that, but I can control whatever messages I'm sending to the world that says it's okay for me to treat me this way. Or I can say, why am I surrounding myself with these people? You know, like, you can, everything you can do, everything that happens to you, you can, you can put through this filter and then say, okay, this is what I, like, it's, this is what they teach addicts, right? The, the. The courage and wisdom to know the difference between the things you can change and the things yeah. you can't change. And to focus only on the ones that you can and to accept the ones that you can. Yeah. And uh, you know, that is also the opposite of that is a recipe for insanity, right? It's to focus on the things you can't change and to hurl yourself against them is yeah. miserable. As you say, you'll make your own life into a hell rather than yeah. a heaven. That's that's yeah. the choice we all have. That's another interesting thing too. Like every every little thing that bothers you. Like I remember, I put I made an Instagram post, right? And I used I'm used to people talking shit. It's just yeah. part of the fucking game, and I'm really comfortable now. At first, I freaked out like sure. four years ago, and I wasn't ready, you know. So I make this Instagram post, and some people are talking shit. And it was this post of me like hitting mitts with Danny, just having fun, and people are talking shit, and it bothered me, and it, I wasn't used to it. And I was yeah. like, what about it? And then so I like I was 
it was just when I was reading your book. So I was like, okay, cool. Like this bothered me in this instance for some reason. And so I tracked back to some like insecurity about sure. my fucking boxing skills or right. something. I was like, oh, okay. So there's this little devil that's still inside there. Yeah. It's like, that's let me, let me look at that. Let me track. Okay. I got that. And then I was able to process, like, see where that came from and, like, understand why it bothered me. Instead of just being like, man, fucking people, people are assholes. I was like, okay, cool. Thanks for doing that. Because obviously I was carrying this little insecurity that's unnecessary, you know, something buried in there that hadn't been tickled in a while that I would have just carried along without knowing about it until someone, you know, talked the right amount of shit and it just opened it up for me and and with that philosophy you can just take that as like yeah thanks motherfucker i appreciate that yeah the nice part is like haters are always going to be honest they might not be right right they're going to be honest yeah exactly you can learn so much from that. sure and that's another really important lesson of this is you know they're like almost some of your best like best teachers sometimes they're totally off but then you can track your reaction to them and then learn more about yourself if they're totally off like how does it treat like if someone if someone calls you something that totally doesn't fit with you right. like you're not insecure about it at all like you're a zebra and you're just like that doesn't bother you right. you're like right. i'm not a zebra i'm fucking certain you're right. a crazy person but if they're like yeah you know but you're not good in bed and then all of a sudden you get all weird about it you know sure. like you know that that's like an insecurity that yeah. you got to just get over that shit and like track that back and be like hey i'm fucking I'm cool with it. Like, so whatever they say that like gets you all weird, like do the internal work and get over that. Yeah. Like one of the best pieces of advice I ever got about writing was like, when someone tells you something's wrong, they're always right. When someone tells you why it's wrong, they're always wrong. So (laughs) it's like they're pointing out some problem and then that's where you, that you listen up to that point. And then when they're like, but what you have to do is this, this, this. <laughs> yeah, go fuck Chances off. are they're probably <laughs> totally wrong. But they're re- they're react. Something is rubbing them the wrong way, and that's helpful. Mm-hmm. And like that's sort of what Robert Greene says, right? One of the laws of power is uh, is beware of friends, make use of enemies, right? The mm-hmm. idea is that you can you can make use of this ne- this negative energy that's being directed towards you, or this at least there's a certain honesty or. Um, clarity of motives with the people who are working against you and you can yeah. figure that out and you can use it in some way and that's a very stoic idea too it's to say like look these people are acting the way they are because that's who they are there's going to be like there's a quote from Mark Surrealist where he's like oh this person is is uh, is acting shamelessly did you ever think that there would be a world without shameless people no well this is one of those people like <laughs> yeah. this, they're doing their job you know what I mean right and so you're just supposed to say, this is what they're doing. This is what I can learn from them. This is what I can take from that. Even if what you're just taking is, that's a good reminder of never be like that because that's what it looks like. Yeah. And I think having this code, you know, because you're not always going to naturally take that in. Like some sure. of it's going to have to be a mental override until you get yeah. really good at it. Like, And even then, probably even for Marcus Aurelius, there'd have to be these mental override moments. Like when his friend revolted. Sure. You know, I'm sure his initial reaction was like, I'm going to fucking, fucking yeah. light him up. Yeah. You know? But then he had this mental override. Like this is a great teaching point like a great example of me to practice the height of my skill in forgiving this guy i mean i'm going to fight the war but his goal was to forgive him right yeah so as i say in the book all easier said than done right right? and it takes like a lifetime and one of the worst parts about writing a book about stoicism is you're like suddenly (laughs) not allowed to get upset about anything (laughs) yeah yeah. people like oh didn't you say this and it's like uh, does your wife just like pull that shit yeah all the time like like, you're the least stoic person in the entire world (laughs) 
Um, oh man. Yeah. So, and then, then I can't get angry about that. Uh, but like, um, one of my, if you really get into stoicism, there's a French writer, he, he's now deceased, but his name was Pierre Hadot or Hadot. I don't know how to fucking pronounce it, yeah. but, um, he wrote this book called the inner citadel, which is probably the greatest academic sort of dissection of Marcus Aurelius and the Stoics. And what he's saying is like, we've wrongly interpreted uh, this book for a really long time. We think it's like, here's this wise man like preaching to you about how you should be. And he's like, no, Marx Aurelius had no idea that the meditations would ever be printed. And in fact, probably assumed it would be destroyed upon his death. So what he's actually writing are notes to himself. And why would someone write a note to themselves about something they're good at? Right. Yeah, totally. You wouldn't go like, Hey, um, Great job not complaining at court today. <laughs> right, you know, right. keep it up. He's writing never he like he clearly he caught complained. himself yeah, totally. he caught himself complaining and then he was like, Nope, need a rule about that. And he wrote it down to himself. And and that's that's another like the main academic criticism of Stoicism has been that it's repetitive. And he's like you morons, it's supposed to be repetitive. Those are the important lessons that needed to be reiterated, yeah. right? It's like he wrote this this thing in you know the year 140 AD and 152 AD. He's still struggling with it, so he wrote another note about it. Like yeah, it's not yeah, repetitive. Yeah. It's 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 emphasis, and so um, it because it's, it's the like, hardest shit in the world. Like this is sure. the thing. Yeah, like turning every opposition into something that you're grateful for. You know, oh, that's the fucking thing. Especially when those things are get increasingly bad or <laughs> right, frustrating, yeah. right? Like, it's like, hey, you know, someone cuts you off in traffic. Okay, how do I not get mad about that? Now, uh, my business partner has stolen all my ideas and started a, a rival company. Yeah, That's where it suddenly becomes a little bit harder to apply, but that's where you're going to get the most mileage out of it. Totally. All right, so let's switch gears a little bit because I think... <clears throat> one part that stoicism doesn't cover which i think epicureanism has a kind of cool idea is like sometimes you need a break sure you know? and it's like you got some leisure and epicureanism was born of you know in the roman upper class they had fucking tons of time yes and they had not shit to do so slaves did all the work slaves did all the work they yeah. didn't have like jobs right so they just had villas right. and a ton of time to kill mm -hmm. and they were trying to figure out like how can i get the most pleasure and so hedonism and epicureanism kind of split off as two answers to that right yeah although i think it's really interesting because like stoicism and epicureanism are sort of coming at, a, at about the same time with similar people with similar backgrounds and we've we now think that there are these rival schools of thought but they really weren't and like right. um uh, Seneca, one of the famous Stoics, quotes Epicurus all the time. Mm -hmm. And so I, to the degree that we think Stoicism is about like gritting your teeth and bearing the shittiness of life and being <laughs> depressive, we also miss, uh, misunderstand Epicureanism as like just pure pleasure, season. pure pleasure and orgies and, ex and ecstasy and excess and all those things. It was really about like, I think Epicureanism... Stoicism is like, okay, how do you, how are you resilient for a life that you don't, a world that you don't control? And Epicureanism says, how do you, how do you have as much happiness in this brief life that you're given? So it's essentially the same understanding of the world with a slightly different emphasis. And one of the things that I push back on too, and, and this is pretty clear in the Stoic literature, is that they're not saying you shouldn't be happy and you shouldn't sure. do pleasurable things. This is the way to happiness. Yeah. Right? But, but it just doesn't describe a lot of leisure. Yes. And, but, and the Stoics are, I think the Stoics would also say, 
I don't need to. I don't write. need notes on these. Yeah, I don't need to. <laughs> I'm good at that right, shit right, naturally. Right. That's the natural part. You don't need like joy comes naturally. Right. Um, resilience maybe doesn't, and so that's what they're talking about. But but I I love Epicurus too. It's this idea of of you know how can you how can you not become addicted to pleasure but also enjoy it while it's in front of right. you because i think a lot of people make missteps in this pursuit of pleasure you know sure. like and it is there is a lot of parallels there i i think for sure i mean so epicureanism is basically you want to maximize pleasure and minimize the the damage and the downside causing yes. that so if drinking to excess gives you a little bit more pleasure, but then you have a bigger hangover at the end, sure. they're like, cut that shit out. Right. Like maybe every once in a great while so you can push the boundary a little bit. Right. So it's like moderation in all things, including moderation, was kind of like a lot of the philosophy as far as I understood it. So mostly it was just spending time with your friends, reading, sitting out in the garden, enjoying food. And every once in a while, you have a fucking rager. Sure. <laughs> yeah, know? no, no. I, th- I think that's a good way to put it. And yeah. and nothing illustrates this to me better than like the concept of cheat days. Yeah, right? totally. Like, you eat really well, then you have this cheat day, and you love it while you're doing it, and then you're just like, oh, this is the worst. Why did I do this? And then you're like, wait, I used to feel that way all the time, and yeah. I didn't know that my choices were making me feel that way. Yeah, I think the the big thing that you see that the the Epicureans and the and the Stoics and uh, is it Marshall or or Juvenal? They they have this line where um, he says like uh, the only difference between a Stoic and an Epicurean is the shirt on their back. It's like one is wearing a shirt where the other just is like, oh, I don't need a shirt, you know. Um, but but uh, but I I think it's this idea of like. You see these people who, when life is doing really well, they're sort of living high on the hog and they've got all this awesome stuff. And you might be temporarily jealous of them. They've got all this shit. And then the problem is when they lose it and you realize that their happiness was dependent on those Mm -hmm. things. So I think if if someone someone finds stoicism to be a little... um, like too strident or stringent, Seneca is probably the best sort of middle ground there. Um, he was famous. He was rich. Um, he was a lover of art and literature, but also a Stoic. And and sort of he did the opposite. He was like, look, live every day and enjoy all these pleasures. But he's like, one day a month, you should practice like poverty and total sort of collapse of life. So he's like, like, wear like poor clothes, don't eat any food, sleep outside. So you can, you can, so when you're enjoying like some luxurious banquet, you're like, this is really nice. You also know, like, it's like smelling, I don't the, eat it. It's like smelling the coffee in between your perfumes. Yeah. You know, right. it's like a, yeah. it's like a palate refresher. Yeah. And, and, and just realizing like, I don't, I'm okay with the opposite of sure. this. Like as soon as you can get to a point where you like, where you have everything that you have, but you don't need it, but you don't need it. That's like sort of true wealth. It's- and that's when you, when you have that philosophy, you're going to get more of that anyways. Like sure. anytime, anytime you're craving something cause you need it as some, it, it has with it a fear that you're not going to get it because yes. some part of you is afraid that you're not going to get it. And if you're afraid you're not going to get it, then that's going to start this cascade where you're going to push it away from yourself. That craving actually will sure. push it away. Happens in relationships. It happens in finance. Happens with everything. Happens in gambling. Happens in mm-hmm. as soon as you crave or need something, you know, you end up pushing that away more often than not. I mean, one of the great. I say this a lot, but I talked to this uh, really great poker player, and he talked to his master, who'd won, his his kind of mentor, who'd won a couple World Series of Poker. I don't know who his mentor was. And he was like, man, when am I going to win the World Series of Poker? He's like, you win the World Series of Poker when it doesn't matter to you if you win the World Series of Poker. Sure. 
like when you don't crave it and need it, because then all that fear and greed and all of these things are going to push your game out of alignment. Right. When it's like, I'm just playing poker, man. Oh, this is a World Series? Right. Cool. I'm just sure. playing poker, though, you know, and this is what I do. That's when you can have a chance to win it. Yeah, totally. I mean, what you net being dependent on external things for your happiness is a form of slavery. Building right? castles on sand, yeah, man. You don't control them. And Murphy's Law will intervene. Yeah. So tracking your attachments is such a key thing to do. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you attached to? And I, I try to do that as like a regular sure. practice of mine, like even on it. And that's where it gets really hard. You know, like, sure. I fucking love this company, but right. I have to go through this idea of like, man, what if this all goes away? Like, sure. what if everything goes right. away? And, uh, and like, what if all the, the houses, everything? I love a lot of things. And, right. But just go through this meditation. It's like, all right, well, I definitely get to keep this pen. I have a favorite pen. Right. <laughs> it's like this wood pen. It's like, I get to keep this pen sure. and I get to keep this flute. Like, nothing right. will ever get so bad that I can't keep this pen and this flute and like this pair of shoes. And I'm like, I'll be fucking okay, actually. And then it's such a relief to realize, like, I got a pen, I got a flute, and I'm alive. And sure. I'm cool with that. Yeah. And, and, and I think the other thing is, like, no one can take away the fact that you had it. And right. so it's like, if it didn't give you pleasure now, that's, if having it is what gives you the pleasure, that's a problem. Yeah. If having had it was what gave you pleasure, that's fantastic because that right. can never be taken away. The fact that if what you take, what I, uh, I talk about this in my new book, which I'm writing now, it's like, if the effort is enough, then you're in really great shape because it's the doing that you got all the satisfaction from. And then you're indifferent to the rewards yeah. the, that they came. Awesome. I'm going to enjoy them. But if, if like I thought about this with the with the Stoicism book a lot, like I was like I wrote this book, I'm really proud of it. The people that I respect have liked it. Now I need to be okay. Like the day before launch, I need to I need to make myself okay with the fact that it could sell zero copies, yeah. or worse, everyone could say it fucking sucks because <laughs> I know that they're wrong, and right. and that is the ultimate position that you want to be in. And if you're not in that position, you're you're fucked because now I am. It, let's say. Let's say to be proud of myself or to feel good about myself, I need to sell a million copies. Now I'm dependent on one million people <laughs> doing something that I have essentially no ability sure. to make them do. And if they don't do it, then I've if and if nine hundred thousand of them do it, which would be great, I'm still not good enough. And you see really rich, successful people. It's like a cliche, but you see rich, successful people way more miserable than than unsuccessful people but also now there's this there's this really nasty trap that i think a lot of people even in super young generations are getting in and it's this social media validation trap which is like they post something and if it doesn't get a good response they feel bad and if it gets a good response they feel good so they're dependent on this weird game of half validation of half strangers total strangers some friends (laughs) And it's a fucking savage world out there. And when people see that you're dependent on it and then you start to get needy and then it's going to get, then it gets even worse. And then you create this kind of cycle. But that's probably the hardest one to do because we're, we're social beings that have like, we survive on social validation. So it's like tapping into one of the very most difficult things to lose your attachment to. But to do it, I'm not saying don't do social media, but you better post that motherfucker and not care if you get zero likes, all hate and 25 sure. billion thumbs down on your YouTube video or whether you get a bunch. Because if you're dependent on that, watch out. Well, Marcus Aurelius talks about this in meditations. He's like, think of the people whose respect you crave. 
and th- he's like, think about what they submitted themselves. He's like, basically, he's like, like that dude was probably fucking jacking off in the bathroom like an hour ago, <laughs> or like you know, like this person's got like some gross fetish, or like this guy's like an addict, or this guy like abuses his slaves, or whatever. Yeah, whatever yeah. the problems in Roman times would be, he's like. Why are is their approval important to you? You don't respect those people, right? And you, they don't respect like those people don't adhere to the same standards that you yourself adhere to, yeah. and yet you are withholding your own sort of happiness or sense of self respect based on whether they validate you or not, which is an insane way of thinking or living, and it's natural. But what stoicism is, and what I think all good philosophy is is a sort of set of mental exercises that help you sort of um, unravel those faulty assumptions and yeah. replace them with like some more logic. It's, I mean, I think our education system is so ridiculous because you get, you learn all of these fucking stupid skills, sure. like long division and right. shit. Cursive. Cursive and fucking asinine things. But right. like how to prepare somebody for life okay, let's teach them stoicism. Let's teach them Epicure. Let's teach them, let's have them read Bertrand Russell and, right. you know, let's have them read Blake and all of these yeah. different people. Like people who are pragmatically approaching the most important shit is like something that nobody gets exposed to. It's fucking madness. Well, and that's what I always think when I find someone who like doesn't read and then they're yeah. like complaining about some problem that they have. And it's like, <laughs> you know that for 5,000 years we've had oral and uh, written traditions that are specifically designed to help you with whatever problem you're facing. And chances are someone smarter than you went through what you went through, solved it, and then wrote it down. <laughs> and you're just like, I Man. hope I magically, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I got it. I'll figure it out. And it's like, you know, there's that, uh, there's that Bismarck quote where it's like, any fool can learn from experience. I prefer to learn from the experiences of others. Sure. That's what books are. Yeah. That's what education should be, but it's not for most And people. you still may have to learn from experience, but you'll sure. learn faster. And yes. you'll find your way out of the darkness way fucking quicker if people are shining the light, you know? Yes. And it's like, I don't think I've met anybody who can just read something and be like, oh, yeah, I read on Stokes. I'm fucking Stoke now. Yeah. Like you still got to go through the fire. You still got to go through the gauntlet, but it'll show you the way out in a way that'll yield positive results because other people have been through that shit. Well, let me ask you something because you're a very successful person. I'm sure you mm-hmm. see this. And it's something I was thinking about for the new book. I think one of the biggest problems that we have is like you set out to do X and you've accomplished X, right? And instead of thinking like, this is X, this is what I'm doing, I'm good at it. Now, all of a sudden in society, everyone wants to go like, what are you going to do next? What's Mm -hmm. next? Or you see like, well, I've done all this, but like so-and-so over here did this. And you, you, I think I see so many people hurt themselves and take their eye off the ball chasing these other things that were not important to them at the beginning instead of being able to like sort of be satisfied with what they have, which I think is a very stoic, is the opposite of a stoic idea. The idea of like knowing what's important to you, knowing what you're doing and why you're doing it is also a sort of a recipe for happiness in my experience. So, I mean, there's a lot to that, but I think for me personally, um, there's this concept, this Lakota concept of Hokahe, today is a good day to die. Okay. And to me, that is the place that I want to get to where I'm really fully happy. Because if you're at that place, sure. like, and you can look up and wake every day and say, you know what, today is a good day to die. Not that you're sure. craving it, but that just, if it ended now, you could go with a smile across the great divide, right. you know? Yeah. 
And I think that to me is, that's the challenge because there's some part of me that feels like I have yet to do my life's, my life's work, really? my life's kind of purpose here. And you know, my philosophies haven't ripened yet. My, I haven't put the books out that I know I will. So there's this, there's a fear that I still carry that I will, things could end before I get to do this or for sure. whatever, something could happen that I won't get to do it. But I think the greater wisdom of saying like, you know what, I'm on that path. I truly hope that I get there. Right. But if today ended, you know, I've set, I've done everything I could to this point and to be okay with that along that process. So for me, that concept of Hoka Hey is like my guide That's star. Great. Like yeah. I want to get to that point where every day I can say, yeah, maybe I'll have more shit. If I live 60 years, I'll have more books and stuff, right. but I've done what I could for now. You don't control the clock. You don't control the clock and just keep and just appreciate the path, not not some goal. Because sure. there'll always be another goal. Even right. if I put this first book out, then the next one will be this next goal and there'll be the next one. And then so this, you know, humans are insatiable with what right. you want to accomplish. But to live every day that way, that's that's for me the goal. Yeah, no, and I think the problem is we encourage that insatiability in each sure. other. Like, because we'll say, like, I get this, like, oh, so you've written three books or 27. What are you going to do next? It's like, this, this is what I wanted to yeah. do. Like, like, and you can see, you see, I think this is why you want to read philosophy and why you want to read history is you see the people who were at the same juncture that you were at. And then you get to see, you get to see all the different sort of choose your own adventures, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, this guy was right here. And he'd done this, and then he decided, no, he had to, like, take it to the next level. And that guy became president. Awesome. Right, right. Then this other guy, he did it, and he decided he have, had to have more, and he fucking lost everything. Mm -hmm. You know, is the upside worth the downside? And, like, that's what you get from history, and that's what you get from a, a sort of a real self-education, I think. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Well, dude... This has been awesome. It has. This is great. This has been awesome. We'll have to do this again. For what's sure. your? What's your? Do you, are you able to talk about your next book or uh, like give so some hints or? Here's or the whatever? problem again. So I talk in the book. I talk about not talking about stuff yeah, until right. you're done. So But I would love to. Yeah, it's a, it'll be a sequel to Obstacle. Fuck yeah. Similar approach, but different topic. Awesome man. Awesome. Well, I look forward to that. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Thank you, and everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the first Aubrey Marcus podcast. Beautiful, my friends. Go to. Uh, we're gonna do a sponsor right now, Rama. Oh, beautiful. We've never done that before. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm gonna choose onit.com. O n n i t dot com. Check it out. We got a bunch of cool shit. We got. Uh, we're fleshing out our personal care line. Okay. What I really want to do is all our personal care stuff is like fully edible, like our deodorant stuff. Really. So I'm gonna shoot a video like eating the deodorant, like ice cream cone. Sure. Because. That'll freak people out, eh? Right. Because no one would ever. You don't do that with like. Right. You don't spray Axe in your mouth. Yeah, like you can you brush know? your teeth with Dr. Bronner's, but why would I ever do that? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> right. But that's what you need right. to do because you put it under your armpits. It's yeah. getting in your body. Sure. It's the same thing, you know. But just not through your taste buds. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to taste good, <laughs> you know. But you know, you just have to suck it up. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Ryan. That was awesome. Oh, awesome. people can follow you at Ryan Holiday. Uh, you got a blog too. Yeah, RyanHoliday.net. Yeah. Beautiful. Follow awesome. him. He's yeah. badass. He also has awesome. Yeah, book review going up on AubreyMarks.com. Oh, Obstacle is the way. Check it out. Buy that book. What's the best way for them to buy it? Amazon? Yeah, Amazon's good. Buy it on Amazon. We'll have a link for that. Cool. Beautiful. Love you, people. Peace. Awesome. That was awesome, man. That was very cool.